Well, good morning. It's a joy to be with you again. After my Whataburger comments last week, I wasn't sure if I was going to be invited back or not. They talk of fan mail. I didn't get fan mail. I got the other kind of mail. I just want you to know, I'm not against Whataburger. I will go to Whataburger any day of the week over Wendy's. Okay? Can we still be friends? <laughs> Kyle's shaking his head, no. Well, this morning I want to talk about something from the Word of God that is near and dear to my heart. The dangerous duty of delight. The Lord saved me when I was 17 years old. I grew up in a church, a pastor, maybe you've heard of him, uh, Dr. MacArthur, grew up in Los Angeles, California. Do you think I sat under the faithful teaching of God's Word every Sunday? Yeah. I mean, by the time I was a kid, I had memorized so many verses in Awana, I got my little sparky Timothy Award. Hundreds of verses, maybe thousands, I can't even remember. It was a lot of verses. 17 years old, I got saved. The Lord graciously saved me. I was in a church that taught me God's truth, in a church that helped me on the path of spiritual maturity. If you had looked at the first five years of my life as a believer, particularly the days of high school and college, you would have been convinced I was growing, I was truly loving God through humble obedience. And you would have been partly right. However, many of those years were marked with what I call empty religion. Maybe you've heard that term or one like it. Empty religion is something that I define as ritualistic external obedience, often devoid of a growing and passionate love for God. We know truth, we know how to respond to truth, but does it ever pierce our heart to the point where we know why we do truth? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, I went to church four times a week. I was on high school staff, I was on college staff as a lay guy. I was serving in ministry, I was using my gifts. I was the keyboard player in the band. I was discipling guys. I shared the gospel with people. People got saved by the grace of God and for His glory. I tithed. I generally tried to love and obey God with all my heart. However, if you had asked me during certain seasons of those early years of my faith, it was as if I was on autopilot, almost mindlessly going through the motions with very little passion for the Lord and next to no zeal. In fact, you might say that it was mostly Christian duty without the delight. It was empty, unsatisfying. It left me feeling hollow within. And why do you think it left me feeling hollow? Because I was doing all the right things, dressing the right way, speaking the right way, acting the right way, on the outside, but what was missing? That love for Christ. It's hypocrisy. And you know, the sad thing is, is I knew it. I was aware of it. With all my heart, I wanted my heart to line up with my head and my hands. You know what I mean by that? I wanted it to mean something. I had truth. I had knowledge in my head. I was doing ministry. I was serving the Lord with my hands. But where was my heart? Of course, what do you think happened over the course of time? In my seasons of discouragement, unsatisfied with my relationship with the Lord, I began to give in to the temptation to find satisfaction elsewhere. This is not it. This is not working. It became hard to balance ministry and work. I mean, I started working in college. I was good at what I did. I began to make money. People began to say, wow, you're really good at this. And all of a sudden, work began to become more and more important than ministry. 
as a young single college guy, what do you think came next? Yeah, girls. Girls. I began to become a little bit overly focused on finding the right spiritually godly girl who was really beautiful. Notice how I put those in the right order. It's about her spiritual walk with the Lord. In fact, there was a season in particular where I began to wonder if following Christ was really worth it at all. I can remember sitting there thinking in my mind, is this really worth it? Maybe I should just chuck it for a beer and a girl. That's what my friends were doing. I mean, I was looking at my unsafe friends. They seemed to be having the time of their life. And I had friends during that time, even growing up at Grace, with one foot firmly planted in church. They were going to church. They were just like me, doing all the right things on the outside. But during the week, what do you think happened? Where was that other foot? It was planted in the world. How does that work, church? Anybody tried that before? And so I began to wonder, is it really worth it? And so I struggled. For years, I struggled. I didn't abandon my faith. I didn't walk away from the church. I just struggled. Well, sadly, my personal testimony is not all that uncommon in the church today, is it? In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if we had some here today who were or maybe even are struggling with this very thing in your own life right now. Well, today I want us to take a look at Psalm 37, specifically verse 4, which speaks to this issue of how to find true and lasting satisfaction in God the Lord used this verse. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Psalm 37, 4. The Lord used this verse and others like it to help me understand how to be involved in life and ministry, but to do it for Him, to delight in Him first. Now, some of you notice my title. Uh, I just want to admit I didn't come up with it. You know who I sold it from, right? I want to thank Dr. John Piper. The Lord used Dr. Piper significantly. I'll never forget the first time I read Desiring God. It was radical to my thinking. I had never heard anything like it. And then subsequently, C.J. Mahaney, Cross-Centered Life, C.S. Lewis, John Stott, others, the Lord used these godly men, their sermons, their books, their writings, to help me understand the Word of God in a way that I just, I just missed it. And so I want to thank them for their positive influence all of these years. Well, if you're looking for an outline this morning, it's really just two main points. First, I want us to walk through the verse together, verse by, or word by word, and determine how we can engage in this dangerous duty of delight from Psalm 37.4. And then secondly, I want to end with some practical duties to delight in the Lord and be satisfied. If that's what it means to delight in the Lord, then how can we do this? So turn with me, if you're not there, to Psalm 37, 4. Thank you, Kyle, for reading all 40 verses of it. Again, I don't want to just preach a verse without understanding the context. Here at Lakeside Bible Church, we, we typically just don't teach the one verse. We teach the whole section. So I'm doing something a little bit different this morning. But it's important for us to understand the context with which David is writing the psalm. Again, the psalm is centered on the age-old problem of why the righteous suffers while the wicked prosper. Can you appreciate that topic in this season of our life? Does it seem like the wicked prosper while the righteous do not? In fact, I would go so far as to say now there are more Christians being persecuted their faith than ever. Not only are they not prospering, righteousness brings hardship. And David instructs the righteous not to be disturbed over this apparent prosperity of the wicked. He says, don't fret because of the evildoers. Don't be envious toward them. Don't look at them and envy what they have and be envious of what they have. Why? 
Because what does verse 2 say? For they all wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. It looks like they're doing great. And so in verse 35, David says, Look, I saw a tree. It was luxuriant. It was growing. It was prospering. The wicked seemed to have it all. But then when I looked again, it was gone. It was vanished like smoke. And so David reminds us, in contrast to the wicked in their pursuit of pleasures and satisfaction and the things of this world, don't get caught up in the lie that it satisfies, that you'll find what you're looking for. Because David in the psalm says, in fact, what should you do? Trust in the Lord, do good, dwell in the land, cultivate faithfulness, decide, delight yourself in the Lord, verse 4 or 5, commit your way to the Lord, trust also in Him, He will do it. 7, rest in the Lord, wait patiently for Him. Don't be fretting and anxious, wait in the Lord. And certainly, verse 8, cease from anger, forsake wrath. Don't get angry when you see these people succeeding. Is that difficult for us in these election days? When it seems like people are lying or not being truthful? Or, I don't understand that. How, how did that happen? And we, our temptation is to get angry. And again, if it's righteous anger, well, that gives God glory. How often is your anger these days righteous? Huh? Okay, Chris, you're stepping on toes. Back off. We feel passionate about these things. And David is saying, look, don't get anxious because their prosperity is apparent. But in reality, does it last? Again, did you see the theme? David says, what happens to those who pursue wickedness? They'll be cut off. Does that sound like a good thing if God cuts you off? Does that ever, I mean, can you use that, think of that in a positive way? Oh, good, God's going to cut me off today. Cut off from God, from His grace and mercy, from His blessings? Absolutely. Verse 9, the evil deals will be cut off. In verse 13, in fact, the Lord is laughing at the wicked. Laughing at the wicked. I'm, I'm sorry, but if God's laughing at you, that is not a good thing. You think you have it good? You think you're, you really got it figured out? You think you know better? The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. I mean, that sounds like a tagline for one of those Clint Eastwood movies. Doo -doo -doo -doo. Chink, chink, chink. What comes next? It's not good. Because no matter how much of the world's goods you have and the pleasures of this world, God sees your day is coming. And it may be. Some of them, they seem to prosper. And it seems like they don't get caught. But again, we know vengeance is whose? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. David says, don't get anxious and certainly don't envy what they have. Don't become covetous because it doesn't last. They are cut off and in the end, they will receive their due, their recompense. I think, great, Grace. Okay, that's the theme of this psalm. How in the world does Psalm 37.4 fit into this context? And certainly, how does delighting in the Lord help us to fight this temptation to sinfully find satisfaction in the world or even in good things rather than God? Well, let's look at this verse, Psalm 37, 4. David says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight. In the Hebrew, this is an imperative. Church, what is an imperative? What is it? Thank you, Gail. It's a command. It's a command. Something we are to do. And when we don't do it, how does God look at that? Sin. If you are not delighting in the Lord, you are in sin. He says delight. In fact, the stem of this Hebrew verb is active action. It carries that idea in the original Hebrew. It's an active stem of a verb. And it, it means literally to enjoy oneself. To enjoy oneself. 
It has the idea of finding your joy in God. It speaks of the abundance of the blessings that we have in the Lord Himself, totally apart from what He gives us. Now, does it say find your pleasure in God's good gifts? Is that what your translation says? No, what is the command? What is the focus of the command? Delight yourself in whom? In what? In Him. In the Lord. Not His provision. In God. It doesn't say find your pleasure in God's good gifts, things like our health, our athletic, or natural, or even academic abilities, our family, our money, our clothes, our spiritual gifts. It says in the Lord. This is a command to find our joy and our satisfaction in Him. Now turn with me to 1 Timothy 6.17. Because I know some of you are sitting here saying, well, Chris, does that mean it's wrong for me to enjoy the things that God gives me? Is that what you're saying? It's wrong ever to delight in something that God provides? Again, Paul speaks to this. 1 Timothy 6.17. He says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world to give up everything they own and go live like a pauper. Is that what the verse says? No. What is the instruction that Paul wants Timothy to give them? These rich in this present world. Again, he makes the distinction. They may not be rich in the eternal kingdom. They're rich now. What does he say? Don't be conceited. Don't be arrogant. Don't think you did all of this. Because even the gifts that God has given you to make that money came from Him. Don't be conceited. Don't fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on who? God. Riches are uncertain. They're here today and they're gone tomorrow. What is not uncertain? God. Don't be arrogant. Don't be conceited. Verse 8, he says, If we have food and covering, with these we should be content. Teach them to be content with what God provides them. Again, even in our psalm, in Psalm 37, 16, it says, Better is the little of the righteous than the abundant of the wicked. Why is that? Not only because the abundant of the wicked is ill-gotten, but why do wicked get things? Why do they sin to get what they think is going to fulfill the desires of their heart? Where's the focus? It's on them. It's all about them. And can they ever get enough? I mean, all I have to do is look at my iPhone. I had an iPhone 5 for years. And it wasn't until the iPhone 6 came out, and then the 6S, and then that big Jumbotron iPhone, the one that Chris DeLaguila has. It's like a TV screen. He carries it around in his back pocket. And now what are they coming out with? the set? I mean, there's always something better. There's always something new. It's hard for us to be content. In verse 10, he says, don't love money. The, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And then at the end of verse 17, not only are you not to be conceited, not to fix your hope in the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Do you recognize God has blessed you with things so that you can enjoy them? It's not wrong for you to enjoy your health and your family and your things and the prosperity and dare I say, abundant prosperity. God has blessed us. But where's the problem? When we get arrogant, when we fix our eyes off of God and on the stuff, and when we find our contentment not in God, not in what He provides, but in the things themselves. And then what happens? We begin to delight in the blessings and the good gifts of God rather than the blesser himself. We practice idolatry. What is idolatry? I mean, typically when you think of idolatry, you think of some tribe in Africa worshiping a wood or graven image of some type. In fact, I've been to Africa. I've seen it. That, that still goes on today. Is that the kind of idolatry that we're talking about here in America? Anybody worship a little statue? Anybody? Yeah, like you're going to raise your hand. <laughs> Idolatry is when we love something or someone, including ourselves, 
more than we love God. Have you ever loved something or someone more than you love God? Have you? If you say no, you're a liar. And you deserve to go to Waterburger. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'll even pay. We are an idolatrous people. Psalm 37, 4 says, It is our duty to delight in God. It's not wrong to enjoy the things God gives us, but how quickly, how rapidly do those things become elevated where we begin to value and cast our affections on something or someone more than God. It happens so quickly in my own heart, my own life. David is saying, no, it's our duty. We have the command to delight in God. And so this is where Dr. John Piper gets his famous quote. Maybe you've heard this. God is most glorified when we are most, what? Satisfied in Him. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. He's glorified in us. It's every Christian's responsibility to find their joy and happiness in God because that brings God glory. Again, Psalm 32, 11. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad. You righteous, sing, all you who are upright in heart. It's this corporate call for us to rejoice in Him, to be glad in Him. Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord when it's convenient. Rejoice in the Lord when things are going well. Rejoice in the Lord when you feel like it. Rejoice in the Lord when your husband does the dishes. Amen. Is that what it says? Rejoice in the Lord always. Always. I will say it again. Rejoice. 1 Peter 1.8 Peter says, Though you have not seen him, and who's the him? Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And what does this knowledge of Christ, knowing Christ, produce in the heart and life of a believer? Peter says, and are filled with an inexpress inexpressible and glorious joy. This is a delight in Christ that is so intense, so big, so great, you can't even properly explain it to people because of your love for Christ. And see, the thing is, the joy in God, this is not a byproduct of obedience. I think that was part of my problem in high school and college. I just thought if I can just do A, B, C, and D, then the delighting in the Lord will come. So I'm just going to keep almost mindlessly obeying and doing the right things and following a prescribed path because that's what you do. I'm a Christian. Joy in God is not a byproduct of obedience, nor is it a minor goal to be accomplished if possible. Our happiness in God is the goal. Our happiness in God is the goal. Now, some of you are saying, Chris, I don't agree with you, because when I obey, I feel joy. Is that true? Yes. But why do you feel joy when you obey God? Because what happened at the beginning of that obedience your eyes were fixed on him to begin with. You were delighting in the Lord. And so as you were walking in obedience, what was happening? You're like, the love of Christ is motivating me to obey. It's motivating, it's calling, it's beckoning me to do what God commands me. How can I not? And so you obey, and what comes after that is joy. Did you catch that? Let me just illustrate this for us. In Ephesians 5, husbands are commanded to love their wives how? How? Does Christ love the church? To death, fully with their whole heart. That's not easy, but it's what we've been called to do, men. Now, if I kiss my wife goodnight, and then I walk over to my list of duties to check off that I paste on my refrigerator door, I'm walking over, Okay, I kissed her. I'm looking. Okay, do the oh yeah, I did the dishes. Check. 
okay? Took my kids to McKenzie's, yes, check, I love them, okay? Oh, there it is, kiss my wife goodnight, check. Have I fulfilled my duty to love my wife? Do you know if I fulfilled my duty? What do you have to ask me? What's the key question? Why did you kiss her? What motivated you? How often in the Christian life do we get caught up in a checklist? We have a checklist. And again, are lists in and of themselves bad? No. In fact, that's part of how we grow in our spiritual disciplines. Lists are good when accompanied by proper motivation. What is motivating us to do these things? Again, the kiss is an outward expression of my inward delight in my wife. Oh, I guess i got to kiss my wife again. Whoopee! No, I delight in her. I love her. So the physical demonstration of my love for her is because of who she is. It's not because I have to. It's not because of what she does for me. Not even because of how she makes me feel. When I kiss my wife, I get all ooey-gooey inside. She makes me feel special. No, I, I kiss her because of who she is. I love her. I delight in her. How could I not kiss that woman? The junior hires are going, uh, can we move on, please? Again, <laughs> the opposite of satisfaction in God is satisfaction in self. Is there any other avenue? You're either satisfied in God or you're not. And if you're not, who are you focused on? You. It all comes down to satisfying you. You are either going to please God or you are going to please yourself. And if I'm unfaithful to my wife one time, come on, it was just one time. Only unfaithful once. It won't happen again. Is that going to change the way that you view my declaration of love toward her? Would it? Now, again, I'm all for grace and mercy and forgiveness. But you're like, wait, wait, what did you just say? You were unfaithful to her? You said you loved her. How could you? But do you realize that every time you and I are idolatrous in our heart, any time we cast our affections, our love, our delight, in something other than God, we are unfaithful to Him. Now, the whole unfaithful to my wife thing, that, that's like offensive. You're like, man, I'm going to stand up for your wife. Do we get that angry when we're unfaithful to God? And again, where does it begin? In the heart, in our mind. and leads to speech and actions. See, the essence of evil is valuing something higher than God. And we must actively delight in God, who He is, what He has done, what He is doing, and what He will do. Because the reality, back to our text, if we are actively delighting in the Lord, notice what these verses promise. This verse in Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will. This is a promise based upon the condition that we truly delight in God. The psalmist is saying, if you delight in God, this is what God will do. And what will he do? He will give you the desires of your heart. Oh, I like where this sermon is going now. I didn't like it a minute ago, but I like it now. I got to tell you, when I first read this psalm, you know what I thought it meant? If I can just figure out how to do the bare minimum with this whole Christian thing, God will give me whatever I want. I mean, at first glance, doesn't it seem to be saying that? If you delight in the Lord, let's just move over that part, He's going to give you the desires of your heart. It's kind of like when Grandma comes to town for Christmas, and you know from past experience she's going to come in and want to kiss you. You know, I was a little kid. Grandma comes in all slobbery, and come here, sonny, I want to give you a big smooch, and the lips are just there, and you're like, no. But if you don't do it, what happens? 
You don't get what you ask for. What do you get? Those large knit over, you know, those sock things. You know, is it a sock? Is it a cap? I don't know. Grandma made it. You ever get those? That's what you're going to get. So what do you do? It's like you endure. Okay, Grandma. You know, and half your face is covered in slime. And Man, I hope I get what I really wanted. And that was my view. I was like, okay, God, if I can just endure this whole delighting in you thing, I'm going to get whatever I want. What's interesting about this word in the Hebrew, it says he will give you the desires of your heart. This word for desires, it literally means requests or petitions. And really, it's only used two times in the whole Old Testament. First, in Psalm 20, verse 5, says, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions, Psalm 25. And then here in Psalm 37, 4. And the translators purposefully translated it, desires rather than requests or petitions. Why? And I think they were right when they translated it this way. Because these are desires of the heart turned into prayers, turned into requests, Petitions before the Lord. It refers to God fully granting the prayerful requests of those who trust and love and rest and obey Him. All the things that David is calling us to do in this psalm. So when you're tempted to go after the world, when you're tempted to go after what the wicked have to find your satisfaction, when you're tempted to go after satisfaction in empty religion, remember, if you do these things, if you delight in the Lord, He will give you the heart prayers, the requests that you have. Of course, the challenge is a legitimate desire is one that is aligned with the will of God rather than selfish ambition. Sometimes it's hard to tell. Again, remember, what comes first, delight or desires? Delight. Delight in the Lord. As you're doing that progressively, what will happen? He will give you desires. We have to test our desires against the scriptures. And maybe you have a troublesome neighbor. The dog barks, they do nothing. They always seem to park their pickup truck a third into your driveway. You have a neighbor like that? You know, your tree is just barely over the fence. It looks like someone just cut it in half. It's like, dude, just come talk to me. We can work this out. You're like, you know, enough. I desire to be rid of my, my troublesome neighbor. I don't know, maybe you're praying imprecatory prayers. I mean, it's in the Old Testament. Oh, Lord, I bequeath thee to strike Mr. Smith and his ill-begotten dog. Let his truck be burst into flames. Oh, Lord, for your glory, I pray, amen. Is that a legitimate desire? Maybe not. How do you know? How do you know if the desires of your heart are legitimate before the eyes of God? Well, what do we have to do? And the challenge is that our satisfaction in God must be grounded in our own personal holiness, our Christ-likeness. Otherwise, our prayerful requests quickly and often become self-centered instead of God-centered. I mean, sometimes think about the way we pray. God, help me. I need this. Mine. I mean, even our prayers can be incredibly self-centered. Have you ever watched a little kid chasing bubbles in the park? I highly recommend it. We need to laugh every now and then. That kid sees a bubble and his face lights up. And what, immediately, what does the little kid want to do? The hands go out, kind of the the toddling action. He's like, oh, if I can just have that bubble, everything I want, happiness, Lord, just give me that bubble. And then the minute they reach out and grab it, what happens? And they're like, oh. It's like, you just took away all my happiness. But then what happens? See, there's an evil mom going, hey, watch this. He's like, ah. And then what happens? 
Same thing, toddling. That's you and me. Think about that. If I can just lead a small group at church, if I can just have a promotion, if I can just find my spouse to all you singles out there hoping to find the right person, if I can just do this, if I can just have this, uh, God, I need, God, I want, God, give, God, I, and we're like the little kid chasing the bubble. And again, sometimes even those things are good. And maybe it even starts out as something we're praying for in a good way. But then what happens? If we're not delighting in the Lord, what happens to the requests and the desires and the petitions of our heart? I'm not delighting in you. It begins to shift where? To me. To my desires, my wants. Even my prayers cloaked in religious terminology and piety can become self-focused when the word of God, the character of God, the person of God is not fixed before my eyes and my heart. There's something I want you to understand this morning. This verse is not so much about loving God so you can get a nice car, a better job, health, more popularity, nicer possessions. No, I am not teaching a health, wealth, prosperity gospel message. And aren't you glad? It's not what this is about. This verse is about truly loving God so that I can have more of God. Did you get that? It's about delighting in Him and being satisfied in Him for His sake. And that's why the duty of delight is so dangerous. Because when you get on this path, it radically transforms you and changes you and breaks you and begins to show you how unlike you and I are like Jesus. To understand that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him frees us to go after, uh, hard after the all-soul happiness that God is for us in Jesus. But as we're doing that, pursuing Christ, simultaneously we're struck with the realization that our indwelling sin stands in the way of our full satisfaction in God. It opposes and perverts my love for God in making other things look more desirable than God. By making me think that I'm in love with God when actually I'm in love with His gifts. I'm in love with me. So I must fight against any lesser joy that doesn't exalt God as the superior treasure of my life. Who is the treasure of your life? Again, this helps us understand when the psalmist says in Psalm 73, 28, but as for me, the nearness of my God is for my good. How can the nearness of God be for my good? I mean, it's like, okay, God, we're near. I mean, not uncomfortably near, but near. What is he saying? Being near to God is infinitely delightful because God is the perfection of grace and compassion and mercy and kindness and patience and love. And every good thing that you and I experience is ultimately from and through him. Every good thing we experience. When I draw into a closer relationship with God, I'm able to more abundantly experience all things good. That's how come you can read Voice of the Martyrs or Brother Andrew, some of these letters that we get about Christians who have had everything stripped away from them. Or even the Old Testament. How can they be in a prison singing hymns? Does that not make sense? Everything's stripped away, and these Christians are more in love in Christ than I've ever seen. And I'm ashamed. Because I don't love Jesus that way, that passionately. Why is that? Because the nearness of God is for their good. When you have Christ, it's enough. It's enough to delight in Him. He is my satisfaction. I don't need anything else. 
And so when my wife gets a brain tumor and I'm faced with the reality that she may die, and for months we're at MD Anderson waiting, waiting for the results, waiting to find out what it is, and again, I think I told you that story, I thought she died one night. Cut to my heart. Because even my wife can become an idol of my heart. And I'm not saying I want her to die. I want her to live. But there's times in my life where I love her more than Jesus. What do I do when God begins to strip those things away from me? And sometimes he does that for our own good. And we're crying like little kids, oh, I wanted it, oh, I wanted it, oh, I'm not happy. And God's saying, no, you don't need it. I'm enough. Come to me. Delight in me. There's God's way and there's my way. In those early years when I was in college, (laughs) I was like, okay, God, I'm going to follow you most of the time. But then in reality, I kind of just did my thing. And then I would kind of follow God and then I would kind of just go back to my thing. Well, guess what? The more I came to know God, to study, to come to understand who He is, to study Christ and the gospel and the cross, the grace of God, all of these things, as I began to delight in my relationship, He began to change my desires, sometimes against my will, fighting and kicking and screaming. I'm like, I want it, I want it. God's saying, no, it's not good for you. Let it go. I want it, I want it. No, repent. Put it off. I'm enough. And as I began to grow, he began to change my prayers, my thinking, month after month, year after year. And as I'm growing in grace and truth, what's happening? What's happening to the desires of my heart? The things that I used to pray for, the things that I used to want, I look at them and I go, why was I even wanting that? What was I thinking? I was on drugs. I don't know. To the point where more and more as I grow in my relationship and love for Christ, my desires, my will, my heart, my desires are aligned with His. Not perfectly, but aren't you glad there will come a time and a day when they will be aligned perfectly? When we sit at our Savior's feet in a glorified body and we never have to struggle with this ever again because we are going to experience what it means to delight in Jesus I mean, do we even think about heaven? The ultimate experience of worshiping our Savior who gave his life so that we could have life eternal and not go to hell, which is what we deserve? The more I come to love God, the more he exposes the blind spots in my life. The more I come to hate sin, Remember that it is sin that brings death and pain and suffering. The wages of sin is what? Death. Why is it that the the bubbles that I'm chasing in the world and I'm looking at the wicked and their prosperity and I'm thinking, well, if I could just get that, it would make me happy. And the Bible says, no, if you pursue that, that is contrary to God and his will. If you pursue that and if you give into that, that sin will bring you pain and suffering and consequences and death. And do we know this? So why do we do it? As the Old Testament says, like a dog returning to its vomit. We know this. We do it anyway. But when I'm living God's way, according to his will, delighting in him, I'm going to receive the blessing of obedience. James 1.25, the effective doer will be blessed in what he does and what she does. And guess what? Sometimes that blessing is physical. Sometimes it is health. Sometimes the tumor is not cancer. Sometimes it is prosperity, a job better than you could have ever hoped or imagined. Sometimes God does bless us that way. And we should thank him for it. Take it, use it, enjoy it, give it away for the glory of God. Amen? But you know what? Sometimes that blessing is a spiritual blessing. As we delight in the Lord and he's giving us desires of our heart, sometimes I think I need that, but really what I need is a spiritual blessing. 
Sometimes the best thing for me is for God to put me right smack dab in the middle of a trial and start squeezing and applying pressure so that what's really in my heart that I have been blind to all of these years begins to come out in the tension and pressure of that trial because I am blind so often to my sin. The best thing for me is the spiritual blessing of becoming aware of my struggles. Sometimes that is spiritual growth. Sometimes it's peace in the midst of a trial when you find out it is cancer or you do lose your job or you're about to lose your home or you have conflict in your home and you haven't talked with a son or a daughter for years. And you say, God, I'm going to delight in you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to walk. I'm going to commit my ways to you. I'm going to lean on you. I'm going to rest in you. I'm not going to grow anxious and I'm not going to fret and I'm not going to get wrathful or vengeful. And God grants you peace. God promises to bless the effectual doer. And in that moment, God knows what desires of your heart you need the most. Even when you and I don't. We know this is true. Psalm 84, 11. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. No good thing does he withhold for those whose walk is blameless. Psalm 145, verse 19. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. Psalm 16, 11, And then verse after verse after verse. Our God takes care of us. He hears our cry and he is with us. If, we, if you and I delight in the Lord, he will give you the desires of our heart. But just remember that this promise of fulfilled blessings, desires, re- requests, it all hinges upon you and I first truly delighting in the Lord, not simply going through the motions. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. With that in mind, I want to turn to the second part of our message and that's just in light of that. I want to give us three duties that we can practically do to delight in the Lord and be satisfied. First, look up. Look up. Look up to the person of God. And by that, I mean you must come to know God more intimately. Again, have you ever met a couple who's been married 50 years? That's not happening as often these days. I remember the day before we were going to get married, there was this couple at Grace that came up to me. I was getting ready to to marry Shelly. After she asked me to marry her, I said yes, and we were going forward with that. And this couple came to me and said, you are going to be amazed how every year you come to love each other more and more and more. And I'm like, that is ridiculous. (laughs) How can I love? I mean, have you seen her? She is hot. She is good looking. She loves Jesus. She loves me. How can it get any better than this? And then what happens? Five years, 10 years, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50. What is it about? That relationship where they say they love their spouse now more than they have ever loved them. I mean, you would think that that passion that was burning so brightly in the beginning, that the trials of life would only dim that love. But in fact, it's the opposite. That doesn't happen. Because a couple comes to know each other in a more intimate, meaningful, and transparent way. And I realized that was part of my struggle in those early years of of being a young Christian learning to grow in delight and know the Lord. But I love how Paul prays this even for the church in, in Ephesians, in, or in Ephesus, Ephesians 1.17. Again, we, there's that popular verse, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, that comes from this text. You don't have to turn there, but I do want to read it for us. Ephesians 1. If I can find Ephesians. Ephesians 1.17, 
Paul is praying this for them, this church in Ephesus, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. What is Paul praying for? That God would supernaturally open their hearts and their minds to come to know Jesus more, more intimately, more powerfully. We should be praying this for each other. Again, John Stott said this, The cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled, but we have to get near enough for its sparks to fall on us. It's good, isn't it? Again, we think about the cross, we go back to the cross, we look at what Christ did for us and how he suffered and took our sin and our punishment upon himself so that those who would repent of their sin and put their faith in Christ alone would find eternal life. And we recognize it and we acknowledge it and then we do our life. And occasionally we sing a song about it and we think about it, but then we go back and do our life. What is John Stott talking about? He's saying, look, the cross, it's there. Let it be near to you that the sparks of it are falling on you and, and, and giving you this flame and this passion for what Christ did and what Christ is doing because of the cross, progressively sanctifying you and what he will do. He's coming back, amen? We sang about it this morning. Come. You only have that hope if you put your faith and trust in Christ alone as your Lord and Savior. For you, you're not saying, come, Lord Jesus. You're saying, wait, I'm living the life. I'm in the world. For those of you here there this morning, if you do not know Jesus Christ, he is coming back. And if you have not turned from your sin and put your faith in him, all of the hope and satisfaction and delight you're finding in this world, guess what? You're going to find judgment because of rejection of God and his son, Jesus Christ. But for those of us who are in Christ, let me ask you, is there a time in your life when your passion for the Lord burned more brightly than it is right now? Where you are more passionate, more intense? Why did it grow dim? Maybe because we've stopped spending our days and nights looking up at our wonderful, merciful Father. We stopped delighting in knowing God through His Word. We stopped rejoicing in communicating with our Heavenly Father through prayer. We stop practicing the presence of God in our lives. You've got a great quote in there from C.J. Mahaney talking about how a cross-centered life is made up of cross-centered days. Every day, how are you thinking cross-centered and being cross-centered, looking up to the person of God? Because I want to be able to pray, Kyle mentioned about Philippians 3, 7, and 10, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Everything else became rubbish in light of knowing Him. Do you know Christ that way? Well, we've got to study the Word. We have to study His creation. We look at what God's done. We pray to Him. We maybe do a character study on God to have a higher and holier view of God. We enlarge our view of God. And it's a discipline. That's why Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 7, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. It's not easy to continue to take our eyes off of the things of this world and put them on God and focus on Him and His character, who He is, and what He calls us to be and do. But Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, tells us to fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. You want to know how to run the race with endurance? how to throw off the sin that so easily entangles us, you fix your eyes on your hope, Christ. Look up to the person of God. Discipline yourself to think about God, to get to know Him. Because as A.W. Tozer said, the most important thing about us is what comes into our mind when we think about God. He's absolutely right. Secondly, look forward to the promises of God. It's not enough to look up we have to look forward. Sometimes looking forward means we look back, doesn't it? What has God promised back then? What has He done? 
How has He faithfully kept His promises then? See, the way that we push through life's many disappointments and struggles is by placing our hope and trust in God. When you talk to someone who has been tempted to walk away or has walked away from the faith, and you start digging deeper by asking questions as to why they did it, oftentimes there is some part of their personal story where God failed them. They had an expectation, a hope, a dream, a desire. They thought they were doing God's word. They had an expectation on what God would do in response to what they did. And when God didn't meet that, their hope, their love was crushed. You ever met someone like that? Maybe that's something you struggled with. And so you look at the world and you look at what the wicked are doing and that may be even be part of the draw. This doesn't work. I tried this. Look what God did. They get angry, they get bitter, and they leave. How do you fight that? The promises of God. God has promised. And see, part of the problem is sometimes we read Scripture and we see promises there that aren't really there. Does God promise you that He's going to keep you out of pain and hardship? Is that being taught in the church today? Yes. Does God promise He's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and prosperous? Is that a promise? No, in fact, Christ said, if you follow me, they hated the prophets that went before you. They hated me. He kept telling them in three days they're going to kill me. They didn't get it. Guess what they're going to do to you if you follow me? So who wants to come? Here's the sign-up list. Who wants to come for death and dismemberment? Anyone? In fact, that's what Christ promised. Because the world hates you. Now, obviously, the other side of that is the delight and the joy that we have in following Christ and the way he provides for us. But it's these promises of God and the things that steal our delight in God. It could be a trial. It could be a temptation. It could be sin or swept away by the power of God's promises in Scripture. Psalm 37, 34, Wait for the Lord. Keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. Psalm 42, 5, this is the closest word that we have to the word depression. It's translated in the Hebrew, downcast. Psalm 42, 5, it says, Why are you downcast or depressed, O my soul? Do we have a lot of depressed people today? Absolutely. Why are you downcast? Why are you depressed, O soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. At some point, when we're not focused on God and His promises, we lose hope. Of course, Romans 15, 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God has promised us Christ. He's promised us the Holy Spirit, the gospel, life in Christ, a crown of life, eternal life, adoption into God's family, preservation in affliction, blessing, that we won't be abandoned, that we won't be forsaken, forgiveness of sin. There's a biggie. No matter how often you and I sin, no matter how big the sin is, God says if you confess it, He will forgive you. Wow! Thanks, God. Because I'm a sinner. He promises forgiveness of sin, the second coming of Christ, new heavens and earth, and eventual rest in Him. And that's just the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? You start studying the promises of God and the things that He will do, and why will He do it? Because as you're delighting in the Lord, you come to realize He is holy. He will keep His word. He is faithful, even when you and I are faithless. His love is perfect. You cannot improve upon perfect love. God loves us that much. He has promised these things, and the promises of God remind us of who God is and how He is at work. You look up to the person of God. Secondly, you look forward to the promises of God. Thirdly, you look around to the purpose of God. Just really quickly, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink, do all to the what? Why do we do what we do? To make us happy? To be better? To try harder? Everything we do, we do the glory of God. And so Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, whether I'm home, whether I'm absent, I make it my aim to be pleasing to Him. Everything I do, I want it to please the Lord. And so as I preach, do I want you to like the sermon? Yeah, because I'm a sinful pastor who really likes the adoration that you give. Oh, Chris, I really love your sermon. Well, thank you. 
You want to pin the medal on me now or do that later? There's pride there. Why do we preach? Why do we sing? Why do we serve? Why do we work? Why do I kiss my wife? Even the kissing of my wife, I do it to please the Lord. And when I lose sight of that, am I delighting in the Lord? No, who am I delighting in? Again, just like last week, I can sing my It's All About Me song. I already made you endure it once. I'm not going to make you endure it a second time. It's a song I sing to myself when I want to worship myself. Look in the mirror. Hey, champ, it's all about you. Good looking today. You could lose a little weight, but other than that. I mean, we get down on our, on our hands and knees and we go, you are wonderful, and we, we bow down to ourselves and our heart. What is the purpose of God? Everything we do from our work to our family to our life to the way I drive on Highway 105 is to be pleasing to Him for the glory of God. And so as you serve here in the church, are you on autopilot? If so, Flip that switch. Do it for the glory of God. Do it because you are delighting in Him and you are thinking cross-centered and gospel-focused thoughts. And let the love of Christ, because He loved us first, motivate you to serve. And so when there's opportunities to serve, don't sit on the sidelines. Don't wait for someone else to do it. Say, you know what? Because of the love of Christ, I'm in. I'm in. Put me in, coach. And Kyle will put you in. He will. Go to one of the elders, one of the deacons. How can I help? How can I serve? Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let us offer to God an acceptable service with reverence, with awe. He's worthy. He's worth it. We let the love of Christ motivate our obedience. We obey because we love Christ. And I recognize sometimes you have to obey even when you don't feel like it. I love what Piper says about that. There's sometimes I don't feel like worshiping God. Does God command us to obey? Does God command us to worship? Yes. So what do you do when you don't feel like obeying? I'm not going to obey until I feel like it. And then what are you doing? Sinning. So what do you do? You obey. But as you obey, you cry out to God and say, God, change my heart. I want to obey you not just on the outside. I want to obey you on the inside too. You beg God to do that work in you. And so you love, you please, you obey God, you love, you equip, you teach, you help Christians become more like Christ, and then you go out into the world and you love the lost with the hope of the gospel that is the purposes of the church. What's keeping us from sacrificially serving this way? Maybe it's our bank account, maybe it's some pet sin we refuse to repent of and it just steals our joy and so we never feel quite ready to jump in or serve. Maybe it's some form of hypocrisy. Maybe we are holding on to Christ with one hand and our possessions and our things of the world with the other. And it prevents us from being all in. I just want to challenge you this morning. Do an inventory of your life. Think through all the things you love, all the things that you enjoy doing. Now imagine giving them all up for the sake of the glory of God. Are you still happy in the Lord? Are you still delighting in the promises of God? They're all gone. Your family's gone. Your bank account's gone. Your friends, your health, your comforts, your privileges, your freedom, all gone. Now everything else you hold dear in this earth is gone. You're Job, lying in the ash heap with a potsherd, scraping boils and pus off of your skin. Where's your happiness now? Where's your delight? And as you do this inventory, think about which are the ones that were most difficult for you to give up. Which are the ones that you're like, oh, well, I could give up those ten, but not these two. Well, what is it about those two that would be so hard for you to give up? Because it's possible 
and sometimes probable that maybe those have become idols of our heart. And so that's why Keith Green sang the song that I pledge my health and my wife and my kids to heaven. Because even Keith Green, that wonderful songwriter who's with the Lord now, even he struggled with loving God more than the things that God had given him. I mean, if you can't give up sleeping in so that you can spend more time setting your day, setting your heart and mind on the Lord, what does that tell you about your love of sleep? If you've been convicted for days, weeks, months about sharing Christ with a coworker, but it's the fear of man or your pride that keeps getting in the way, what does that tell you about your view of self over your compassion for the lost? Maybe there is idolatry there. And if you're guilty of valuing these things more than God, then repent and take the necessary steps to place your delight in the Lord. Well, this morning we've considered how to engage in the dangerous duty of delight through the lens of Psalm 37.4. Because when we delight, truly delight in the Lord, we are able to find joy in life and ministry because our motive is to glorify God and enjoy Him in our obedience. We've got a wonderful quote there on the back from C.S. Lewis. He says, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. And like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Let us not be too easily pleased by the sinful diversions of the world, nor empty religion. Let our days be cross-centered, kindling a white-hot, blazing love and passion for God. Let us joyfully engage in the dangerous duty of delight in the Lord. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to come to your word. Lord, I am convicted in my own heart because I know there have been times where I have more passionately loved you and that love has transferred into a greater commitment and a greater just even joy in service and ministry and parenting even in the way that I am a husband, a friend. Lord, it's all connected. And so I pray, Lord God, if there is idolatry in our hearts even this morning, if there is something that we love more than you that is preventing us from delighting in you fully, Lord, would you, by the power of your Spirit and the Word of God that we've heard this morning, having spoken to us through this Word, would you bring conviction to our heart, remove the blinders, help us to see it, that we would hate it as you hate it, repent of it, put it off, and replace it with the righteousness of Christ. Lord, let us come to know you and love you and delight in you. Let us not cast our affections on lesser things because we long to be all in, committed to you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for being our God and being a God who is worthy to be delighted in. It's in the precious name of Christ we pray. Amen.